3: This is a Law
4: and Crime Network presentation. This episode contains themes and descriptions of sexual assault, violence, suicide, and self-harm. Listener discretion is advised.
3: Your time in college is often referred to as the best years of your life. It's supposed to be a time of learning, not just about your chosen academic topic, but about yourself, too. Many young students leave their parents and their hometowns and experience the first taste of independence on the cusp of adulthood. This period in our lives leaves us vulnerable. We struggle to fit in and find our place in unfamiliar surroundings. But if there was one place for those who feel that way, it was Sarah Lawrence College. I often call the college the land of broken toys. One of the school slogans is, we're different, so are you. This is a quality of Sarah Lawrence College that one man exploited to create what has all the hallmarks of a cult on campus in late 2010. My name's Elizabeth Rome. I'm an actress and a proud Sarah Lawrence College graduate. Composed from thousands of pages of transcripts, exhibits, audio files, first-hand accounts, and contemporary research, this long crime production uses voice actors to give you an immersive insight into one of the most bizarre cases in recent memory. This is Devil in the Dorm. Larry Ray's downfall was finally set into motion in 2018. On or around October 16, 2018, less than one day after Isabella Pollock accompanied Larry to a hotel in Midtown Manhattan and observed him suffocating female victim one with a plastic bag, She collected $8,740 in extortion and sex trafficking proceeds from Claudia. Between October 18th and October 23rd, 2018, Isabella deposited approximately $6,500 of extortion and sex trafficking proceeds from Claudia into a bank account in her own name. The purpose was to conceal and disguise the nature, source, ownership and control of the proceeds. In April 2019, Claudia left Larry's control for good, but the website blackmailing her and one of her clients still remained online. Larry Ray purchased websites under the names of his victims. He had a portfolio of thousands of URLs that he had purchased from GoDaddy.com where his young followers funneled almost $1 million into his account. In fact, Larry was such a loyal customer to GoDaddy.com that he was personally assigned a premier services representative who later testified at his trial. The GoDaddy representative explained, domain names are basically virtual real estate. I would say a real estate portfolio would be a pretty good analogy. In one spreadsheet, the valuation for the predicted list price of the more than 6,300 domains that Larry had purchased was more than $18 million, if he could find buyers at that price. One of those websites, however, would leave a digital trail noticed by two journalists, something which would cause Larry Ray's entire empire to unravel. During the month that Claudia escaped from his clutches, Larry Ray added even more invasive information and recordings. In an archived page from April of 2019, there are images from Claudia's handwritten so-called confessions. Under a tab marked interests, the following subheadings appear, murder by poisoning, mercury poisoning, and cyanide poisoning. When the pull-down menu is clicked, more tabs appear which read, conversations with dad, life in prison, and I did it for mama. Though clearly intended to torment and intimidate his victim, Larry's website for Claudia Drury contained the seeds of his undoing when other students at Sarah Lawrence began to take notice.
1: In 2018, I basically heard from some fellow alumni of Sarah Lawrence who had recently been to uh, it was their five-year reunion, and you know, people there were talking about how there was this sort of troubling website that seemed to be about somebody who they'd, you know, who who we'd all gone to school with. I mean, I didn't know who these people were, but the the some of my friends did and you know the, the the website featured some of the evidence we've seen in the trial you know it it, it featured videos of larry in, interrogating claudia and it was i mean it was essentially being used to blackmail her but it you know was circulating through the alumni community of just people being like what's going on here i mean this is this the stuff that's like really unsettling like is she okay
3: that's Ezra Marcus, the lead author of a New York Magazine article titled Larry Ray and the Stolen Kids of Sarah Lawrence, which would ultimately break the case wide open.
1: You know, I started talking to her friends, people who'd known her, and, 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 and other people who were in this sort of, in this group. And people were sort of saying, yeah, there was this like older man who had moved into this storm and it had made a lot of people uncomfortable, you know. I by that point, seven, eight years before, it seemed like a fascinating, troubling story. So I started reporting it. I ultimately ended up, you know, got in contact with some of the kind of core members of the group who had, who had made it out or people that had been around the things that happened.
3: To date, Larry Ray has only spoken to one journalist about the Sarah Lawrence case, James Walsh, the co-author of the New York Magazine investigation. His attorneys declined our request for an interview. According to the authors in the expose, Larry mostly wanted to talk about Bernie Carrick, the former NYPD chief who he accused of causing the media attention as a way to slander his name. Larry had an elaborate conspiracy theory to weave to the authors. By the time Larry reached out
5: to us, um, he he had known that Ezra was working on a story Um, Something, who knows what, Ezra had said um, that got back to Larry made Larry think that Ezra was on the kind of Bernie Carrick, you know, bias side. So he wouldn't talk to Ezra. And so he called me and said he would talk to me. And and so I interviewed him on um, a number of occasions.
3: Walsh recalled Larry's responses to his questions being rambling and disjointed.
5: The actual experience of talking to Larry, right? sort of can feel like those videos um he's not quite as aggressive but he will just kind of talk about stuff where you have to be like i just have no idea what you're talking about and he's taking you on this journey and he is not going to deviate from that journey he is not going to give you time to set the course you you know if i ask him a very direct yes or no question he will give me uh, some sort of weird maybe answer i remember at one point we had heard that Larry had done some op for some intelligence agency on a yacht in New York Harbor, something like that. I don't know. We, it was just like, so I just threw it out there and said like, Hey, we heard this. You did this op on uh, a yacht in New York Harbor. And I, I remember he just said, like, what kind of yacht? What kind of boat? And I was just like, who? who what kind of answer is that? And, you know, it's a very straightforward, I think, question. And he's asking about the size of the boat. So he just, he has a way of just not answering any questions he doesn't want to answer. So it's a, it, the experience overall is exhausting and frankly, like not worth a lot as a journalist.
3: Even with Larry being evasive, the New York Magazine investigation landed with tremendous impact when it was published in April 2019. It implored, what happened to the group of bright college students who fell under the sway of a classmate's father? The piece laid bare all the inner workings of the chaos that Larry had created and finally set the slow wheels of justice in motion. The first step was to find out who Larry Ray truly was. For the roommates, Larry had built himself up as something of a mythical figure, a war hero who fought injustice and corruption. Once the facade of valor was finally peeled back, Larry's stories were exposed as half-truths and outlandish lies. Larry Ray was born as Lawrence Greco in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. He spent much of his early childhood in Brooklyn before moving to Wachung, New Jersey when his mother married Gordon Ray a telecommunications executive and son of a five-term congressman from Staten Island. Following the marriage, Larry took his stepfather's surname, Ray. Despite the fact that Larry never graduated from college, he was curiously able to work his way up Wall Street in the mortgage-backed securities field. Larry married his high school sweetheart, Teresa, and the couple went on to have two daughters, Talia and Ava the family moved into a $1 million custom-built home in Warren, New Jersey, a bedroom suburb of New York City. Here, Larry's hefty salary allowed him to indulge in his love of motorcycles and lavish gifts for his wife and girls. Life for Larry was good. He appeared to only fall upwards as he found work as a consultant in insurance and gambling. In this role, Larry met a reputed mobster who owned the company, U.S. Bridge of New York, and he agreed to help the company get insurance for a major project. Larry also held interest in several small construction companies and was a partner in a nightclub in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. Larry was a fan of the nightlife and he attempted to purchase some legendary spots in Manhattan, such as the tunnel and limelight. His role in this new endeavor allowed him to meet people from all walks of life. In 1995, he met Bernie Carrick, who at the time was serving as an NYPD detective working his way up the ranks in the New York City Department of Corrections. The two powerful men hit it off immediately, bonding over their love for motorcycles and became very close friends, meeting up for meals and chatting over the phone. In 1998, Larry even served as Carrick's best man at his wedding. The wedding was an exuberant affair, attended by Donna Hanover, then Mayor Rudy Giuliani's wife and State Supreme Court Justice Leslie Crocker Snyder. A photograph captures Larry standing proudly alongside Carrick and Church, both men suited and booted in their tuxedos. They pose appropriately solemn for the occasion in front of an image of Christ. One guest at the wedding recalled, to the New York Daily News, the thing was top shelf, Martini bar, full spread, the works. The wedding had come to fruition all thanks to Larry, who wrote checks to cover parts of the wedding and lavish reception. That same year, Carrick became the commissioner of the department. Those who knew Larry described him as chameleonic. With his burly appearance and thick Brooklyn accent, he gave a dominating appearance, which only served him well working alongside criminal enterprises. It also had its advantages as he mingled alongside local politicians and high-up members in the NYPD as he spoke with an air of authority in his voice. While Larry was working alongside the seedy U.S. bridge of New York, he came to fear that one of the mobsters of the company was trying to have him killed. But he knew just who to turn to, Carrick. Carrick helped Larry contact the FBI, but unbeknownst to Carrick... Larry was embroiled in a wide-range security fraud scheme involving the pumping and dumping of stocks. In the elaborate scheme, which ran from 1993 to 1996, two stock firms, White Rock Partners and Co. Inc., and State Capital Markets bought stock in small companies, artificially drove up their values, and then sold the stock at a large profit. In the scheme, Larry reported to a Gambino family capo, Eventually, Larry began offering his services as an informant for the federal investigation into the elaborate scheme that he was involved in, turning against the other men involved. According to Larry, he was dragged into the scheme by a childhood friend. Around the same time, another figure emerged, Frank Di Tommaso. Frank was the owner of Interstate Industrial, which was a major New Jersey construction company doing business as a city contractor since the late 1980s. Interstate Industrial had been hit hard with a slew of criticism after they were accused of being connected to organized crime. Their ties to the mob were revealed after the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement tried to revoke their license to work on casinos in Atlantic City. Frank rambled on to Larry about how he was struggling to convince New York and New Jersey authorities that his company was not under control of the mob. Larry had a way with words, and he offered to help Frank handle the regulators. He said that Carrick could vouch for his abilities. Frank recalled in his deposition, he said, Look, I have a lot of experience with law enforcement. I can probably help you. At this point in time, it was like, you know, I wanted to kiss him. Frank made contact with Carrick, and Carrick sung Larry's praises, recommending him for the job in securing the deal. Frank was more than impressed, and in 1998, he hired Larry at a salary of $100,000. He then hired Carrick's brother Don to assist in the role. Frank and Carrick forged their own relationship. His company performed more than $200,000 in renovations to Carrick's apartment at almost no cost. In exchange, Carrick said that he was willing to pass along insider information on the city's investigation into interstate industrial as well as details on upcoming city contracts. Neither Frank nor Carrick knew that Larry was working as an FBI informant for the pump-and-dump scheme. By June of 1999, Larry had been cooperating with the FBI for three years on the investigation into the massive mob-run stock swindle. However, they were not satisfied with his intel, and prosecutors informed him that they believed he was withholding information. In March 2000, Larry was indicted as a co-conspirator in the pump-and-dump scheme. The 19 person indictment was filled with reputed wise guys, including a Bonanno family captain, a Genovese soldier, and a Colombo family associate. Larry was ultimately charged with agreeing to pay a $100,000 bribe to a bond brokerage firm executive. As Larry was fighting his legal woes, he was quickly running low on money. He had already burned through several attorneys when he turned to his one time friend, Carrick, who was now NYPD commissioner. Larry had wanted Carrick to put in a good word with the U.S. Attorney's Office. In an email, Larry pleaded with Carrick, I'm sorry to have to burden you with any of this at all, but I need you and my family needs you. I've done my best to keep you out of it all along. I'm told at my own peril, but as a friend I was mindful of the sensitivity of your position. Carrick responded the following morning, writing, In the event that I am called to testify, I must tell you that my recollection of the events is not consistent with what you remember, and this would have a severely negative impact on your credibility. Carrick had his own career to think about. He was in the running to become President George Bush's Homeland Security Secretary. It was a cabinet position President Bush had created and chosen just for Carrick. Upon learning that Carrick would not be supporting him, Larry was unhappy and embarked on a furious campaign to destroy his reputation by revealing his corruption. He reportedly leaked information about Carrick to New York Daily News about reported gifts he had presented to Carrick. Over the years, Carrick had accepted gifts from Larry in the form of $2,000 to purchase a bejeweled Tiffany badge and $4,300 to buy Bellini furniture. The city's Conflict of Interest Board requires that officials report gifts of $1,000 or more, but Carrick never made proper public disclosures. Intentionally failing to report such gifts is a misdemeanor punishable by up to one year in prison along with a fine of $1,000, but the board can also impose civil fines of up to $10,000. Moreover, when Carrick received the gifts from Larry, He was working for Interstate Industrial and City Ethics rules ban officials from receiving gifts worth more than $50 from anybody doing business with the city. As Larry was divulging everything about the unreported gifts, Carrick withdrew from consideration for Homeland Security Secretary. Carrick maintained he pulled out on his own volition after discovering he may have failed to pay taxes on behalf of his nanny whose immigration status was uncertain. While Carrick was under investigation, Larry appeared before Brooklyn federal judge Leo Glasser and was ordered to stand trial that day. The prospect of the trial terrified Larry so greatly that he pleaded guilty on the spot and was sentenced to nine months of house arrest and five years of probation. He was also ordered to serve 300 hours of community service and was slapped with $5,000 in fines and $100 in court costs. According to his public defender, Michael Gilberti of Red Bank in New Jersey, a good word from Carrick would have saved his client. With Larry on house arrest, Frank denied vehemently that Interstate Industrial had ties to organized crime, but Larry's conviction led the city to suspend $85 million in their contracts. Larry's life only continued to spiral downwards. In 2004, Teresa filed for divorce and a custody battle ensued as each parent fought for custody of Talia and Ava. Shortly afterwards, Teresa called police to their home and accused Larry of striking her. When they arrived, Larry and 15-year-old Talia accused Teresa of child abuse, which resulted in the Child Welfare Department giving Larry temporary custody of his two girls. According to an article in The Cut, Over the course of the next few months, a handful of anonymous reports came into the child welfare department, accusing Teresa of physical and sexual abuse. Talia also accused her grandfather, cousin, and aunt of abuse as well. Teresa fought back, and her lawyers commissioned a psychological evaluation of the family members, which she then submitted to court. In this psychological evaluation, they reported that Larry was literally impossible to evaluate. They found that Larry was able to manipulate and control almost any situation in which he finds himself, including a psychological interview with a forensic examiner, no matter how experienced that examiner may be. Mr. Ray is very good at what he does. The report continued, finding that Larry can be utterly charming and one can be disarmed by his childlike simplicity and smile. But Mr. Ray is no child. He's a calculating, manipulative, and hostile man. The report concluded that Larry had manipulated Talia into making the allegations against her mother and other family members and that the examiner had found no evidence of abuse. When the examiner spoke to four-year-old Ava, she was asked if Teresa had ever hit her. Ava burst into laughter and then quipped, that's what daddy tells me to say. On November 11, 2005, Larry was ordered to allow Ava to visit her mother for Thanksgiving, but the girls never arrived, leading to Teresa accusing him of interfering with the child custody order. A judge sided with Teresa, and Larry was ordered to surrender Talia and Ava to their paternal aunt and to the State Division of Youth and Family Services. According to Larry, despite the psychological report, he still believed that Talia and Ava were being abused at home and he refused to relinquish custody. Larry and Talia and Ava went into hiding. Larry sent Ava to live with a friend while Larry and Talia holed up at Lee Chen's apartment on 93rd Street. They were tracked down by the U.S. Marshals on December 2nd, 2005. As Larry was hauled away, Talia screamed, Police corruption! This is because of Mayor Rudy Giuliani and Bernard Carrick. Larry was arrested on the custody charges and was ordered to be held on $100,000 bail, which he posted promptly and was released from custody. Since custody was relinquished, Talia and Ava were returned to their mother, but Talia refused, instead opting to live in youth shelters. According to the Cut article, someone familiar with the divorce proceedings commented, She was his soldier. Talia's a really loving person, and she's the biggest victim of all. Larry claimed that the legal proceedings against him were all the work of Carrick and Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who once considered Carrick to be one of the most trusted lieutenants and appointed him the city's police commissioner, but distanced himself in the light of Carrick's mounting legal problems. In various blog posts, Larry accused judges, prosecutors, police, and federal agents of being in cahoots with Carrick, and accused Carrick of wanting to silence him. Giuliani's partner in his security consulting firm said in an article by the Denver Post, Larry Ray's accusations are completely false and without merit. Let us remember Mr. Ray is a convicted felon with a track record of dishonesty whose statements continue to lack one iota of credibility. As anyone familiar with Mr. Ray's history will attest, his character, credibility, and motives are all quite suspect and any statements he makes should be judged accordingly. Seemingly, Talia was a true believer in her father's stories about being a persecuted truth-teller. In an email, she wrote, If there is one thing I've learned about myself through all the corruption, it's that I love justice. If there is one thing I've learned about the world since you got out, it's that justice is real, and that mere men can indeed affect it. That's huge, because that means I love something very, very real. Larry's newfound freedom wasn't to last, and in January 2006, ...he was charged with violating his federal probation by being arrested. Federal Judge Leo Glasser refused to consider letting Larry out on bail... ...after prosecutors disclosed that he had deposited $50,000 into Talia's bank account... ...when he still owed the feds the $5,000 fine from his conspiracy conviction. Moreover, he had kept a 22 caliber rifle in his home... ...and had gone on out-of-state trips without permission both things that further violated his federal probation. Larry was ordered to serve six months for violating his probation, and upon his release, his legal woes only continued. He was ordered to stand trial on the custody charges, and the trial was scheduled for January 16, 2007, but when the trial date rolled around, Larry was a no-show. Over the course of the next year, Larry remained a fugitive and in December 2007, he and Talia filed a federal lawsuit alleging that Talia was the victim of generational sexual abuse. The lawsuit was filed in federal court against Dr. Lawrence Guarino. In the lawsuit, Larry accused Lawrence, her maternal grandfather, of sexually abusing her between the years of 1993 and 1997. He also accused Teresa of sexually abusing Talia between the years of 1989 and 2002. Larry was finally arrested January 25, 2008 for skipping bail, and his $100,000 bail was revoked out of fear that he was a flight risk. He was charged with second-degree interference with child custody, third-degree bail jumping, and fourth-degree contempt of court. In March 2009, the abuse lawsuit Larry and Talia filed was dismissed after child welfare investigators found that the claims were unfounded and manufactured by Larry. That same year, Carrick's political plans all came crashing down.
2: Former New York City Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick has been indicted on charges of lying to White House officials. Prosecutors claim Carrick made false statements to officials in the Bush administration. They were vetting him for Homeland Security secretary. The indictment alleges Carrick lied about $255,000 in renovations to his home while he was New York's top cop. The document claims the work was done by contractors who were looking to do business with the city. Carrick withdrew his bid for Homeland Security in 2004 amid a lot of problems with the nomination. Similar charges had been brought against Carrick as part of a larger case in New York. They were dismissed and transferred to Washington. Carrick's lawyer says the allegations are unfounded and vows his client will be vindicated.
3: That boilerplate prediction from Carrick's attorney did not come to pass.
2: New York's former top cop and the man who almost became President Bush's Homeland Security Secretary has drawn four years in federal prison. Bernard Carrick pleaded guilty to tax fraud, lying to the White House and other charges while being vetted for the Homeland Security Post back in 2004. Carrick told the Bush administration that he had not had financial dealings with anyone looking to do business with New York City. He later admitted that he accepted renovations of his apartment from a company seeking city work. Carrick was the one-time right-hand man to former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani and was at his side on 9-11. The judge went above recommendations for the length of the prison sentence, in part because he says Carrick used 9 11 for personal gain.
3: Despite the conviction, Carrick was defiant. He still stood by his claim that he took the renovation work from interstate industry because he thought they were clean. He was ordered to serve four years in prison and pay $221,000 in fines and fees. Rose Gill Hearn, the commissioner of the city's Department of Investigation, commented to the New York Post, he betrayed the public trust. Mr. Carrick was not able to avoid justice. Carrick himself made a comment to the New York Post, telling them, I'm sorry that my friends and family were put through this. I pleaded guilty to two ethical violations, and I admitted, looking back, that I was wrong. I should have been more focused and more sophisticated in how I deal with these conflict-of-interest laws. It's a lesson learned, and I will move on from here. Larry also said to the New York Post, It's a sad day when somebody, especially somebody who's a public official, ends up being less than responsible. He continued, Do I feel bad for him? No, not at all. Carrick agreed to be interviewed by Long Crime, but not on audio recording. In that interview, Kerr called Larry a master manipulator and told the story about how he picked Larry up at John F. Kennedy International Airport. A pretty notable figure stood by Larry's side. It was former Russian President Mikhail Gorbachev standing with his longtime interpreter. The Washington Post reported some of Gorbachev's visit to City Hall to see then New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani back in December, 1997. The archived version of the article is chock-full of photos of Larry and the ex-NYPD chief posing with each other, New York City's powerful, and the international elite. Photographs capture a much younger Rudy, smiling ear-to-ear, ear, surrounded by two expressionless men. Larry Ray with his shiny bald head looked stolid and stood to Rudy's right in a nondescript dark suit. Bernie Carrick with his distinctive mustache like a wide, upside-down V, stares directly into the camera on his left. Standing without the mayor in a separate photograph are Gorbachev, Carrick, and Larry again. Gorbachev is instantly recognizable from the thin stream-like birthmark on the top of his scalp. The ex-Russian president extends his hand in the direction of the camera lens. Larry seems to have been surprised by the photographer in this picture, his mouth and jaw slightly open. Carrick has a similar expression. Needless to say, the photographs fully support the idea that Larry Ray was once a man of some power and influence, and before his dramatic fall from grace, so was Bernie Carrick. To this day, Carrick still blames Larry for his prosecution and imprisonment, but unlike Larry, Carrick still has friends in high places.
2: I just pardoned Bernie Carrick, uh, a man who had many recommendations from... A lot of good people. Former New York Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick was sentenced to 48 months in prison after pleading guilty to multiple charges of tax fraud and lying to officials. Released in 2013 after serving three years for good behavior, Carrick expressed his immediate gratitude to the president for today's pardon. There are no words to express my appreciation and gratitude to President Trump. With the exception of the birth of my children, today is one of the greatest days of my life being made a full and whole American citizen again. Going to prison is like dying with your eyes open. The permanent loss of your civil and constitutional rights are personally devastating. This pardon restores those rights for which I will be eternally grateful, writes Carrick.
3: Through Carrick and Giuliani, Larry Ray has at least two indirect ties to former President Trump, but there is yet a third. According to court documents, Larry provided information on both Italian and Russian-organized crime families when he was cooperating with the U.S. government. Those same documents link Larry to one of Trump's former business partners, Felix Sater. Sater's embarrassing history with Trump surfaced in this 2015 ABC News investigation, led by Law & Crime's own Brian Ross.
2: Now there are questions about what Trump said under oath in a civil lawsuit about one of the people who helped develop the Trump Soho Hotel and Condominium in New York City, the man on the right with Trump at the hotel launch party, Felix Sater a twice-convicted felon once tied to organized crime and a massive stock scam, someone Trump now maintains he barely knows. In his videotape testimony obtained by ABC News, Trump said he could not even recall what Sater looked like. If he were sitting in the room right now, I really wouldn't know what he looked like. But an ABC News investigation found Sater, an executive at a real estate company, was actively involved in a number of proposed deals with Trump. Here they were together in Denver in 2005. And in 2010, three years after Sater's mob ties became public, the Trump Organization issued Sater business cards identifying him as a senior advisor to Donald Trump with a Trump Organization email address and phone number. Trump's lawyer says Sater was an independent broker, but no deals came out of it. Whatever the relationship, it appears to be very much a sore point for Trump. Why didn't you go to Felix Sater and say, you're connected
1: with the mafia, you're fired?
2: Well, Two years ago, Trump cut short a BBC interview after being pressed about Sater. I hate to do this, but I do have that big group of people waiting, so I have to Okay, now on, one last question. Trump later said, under oath, he did not remember being interviewed by the BBC.
3: Larry claimed that the federal government sent him to lure Sater back to the United States for prosecution. Sater pleaded guilty in 1998 for his role in a pump-and-dump scheme spearheaded by the Russian mafia. Sater declined a request for an interview, but he did send a colorful message to long crime through social media. I met him like four times in my life and the relationship went to shit pretty quickly, Sater said. Indeed, Larry's ties to powerful Republican and Democratic leaders would prove to become a bipartisan embarrassment for politicians. In an interview with Law & Crime, Carrick said that Larry introduced him to former New York Governor Mario Cuomo and ex-Senator Robert Torricelli, a Democrat from New Jersey. Larry didn't seem to care about the party affiliations of anyone who could lead him close to power. Given Larry's often surprising ties to the powerful, you could be forgiven for thinking that his early life made him look like a balding, middle-aged version of Forrest Gump, and indeed, Larry even had a Hollywood tie. After apparently arranging Gorbachev's introduction to Rudy Giuliani, Larry reportedly took the Russian leader to the West Coast and showed him off to actor Robert De Niro. The Goodfellas actor told New York Magazine, in the publication's 2019 exposé, that he found it odd that this guy, meaning Larry Ray, arranged the meeting. While Larry had woven long and elaborate tales of his military valor, he had in fact only served 19 days in the Air Force, and had never been a Marine. Law enforcement and intelligence services have been hesitant to separate the facts from the fiction, In his memoir, Dan remembered Larry talking up his supposed work for the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency, which has not yet responded to Law and Crime's Freedom of Information Act request. Larry had talked up what he described as his role in ending the Kosovo War, even claiming to have a letter from a NATO official proving it. He showed the letter off with pride, but there was no evidence ever found that could corroborate the authenticity of the letter. That was just the thing with Larry. He was a man prone to exaggeration, but who appeared to have real receipts to back up his elaborate backstory. In January 2010, Larry appeared in court where he admitted to interfering with custody orders during the 2005 divorce. He had reached a plea agreement in which he pleaded guilty in exchange of the recommendation he be sentenced as a third-degree offender with three years in state prison. It was an ideal recommendation for Larry who was facing five to 10 years in prison for the second degree interference charge. In September of that same year, Larry was released from prison. Down and out, he made his way to Sloan Woods Nine. Trouble Only continued to follow Larry and once settled into the dorm, he agreed to cooperate with investigators looking into the seedy dealings of Carrick and Frank. In 2012, Larry testified against Frank in a perjury trial relating to the renovation scandal. His brother Peter had committed perjury for lying to a grand jury investigating Carrick, and both he and Frank were put on trial. Ultimately, Peter was convicted of the offense while Frank was acquitted. Frank never forgot about the slight, and in 2015, he followed Larry into the lobby of the Hudson Hotel. As Larry went to shake Frank's hand, Frank punched him once in the face. Larry crumbled to the ground and Frank continued to pummel him until bystanders intervened. The entire incident was captured on surveillance footage and had left Larry with a skull fracture as well as permanent speech and other neurological problems. Santos Rosario was a witness to the assault and would later be accused by Larry of conspiring with Frank DiTomaso. This was yet another way to control Santos, through fear.
2: Larry kept accusing me of having done so and said I was lying when I said it wasn't true, that I hadn't. And I, by this point, I was both afraid of saying that I hadn't and I was convinced I just didn't want to remember because Larry would insist on it so much otherwise.
3: Larry accused Frank DiTomaso of wielding a metal weapon during the attack, and Frank was initially charged with felony assault in 2016. This was later reduced to a misdemeanor by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, citing a lack of evidence of a weapon. Frank pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct, which is a violation, and was ordered to do one day of anger management lee chen the owner of the apartment was eventually able to have larry and the group evicted in 2016. larry felicia and isabella then moved to piscataway new jersey and stayed in a house owned by a man named scott muller here larry continued to exert a high level of control over felicio
4: rosario at first larry and i were sleeping together in one of the other bedrooms the one actually next to scott's bedroom And then Isabella was sleeping on the couch. Then Larry decided to remodel the room that we were in. And he put me on the couch and went to sleep with Isabella. And they went to sleep. And then they... They rearranged... They took everything out of Scott's office and made that a bedroom. And that's where they slept. Well, Isabella slept there first by herself. Then he went to sleep with her there. And then put me on the couch. I couldn't access the refrigerator. Sometimes sometimes yes sometimes no it really varied on whatever he how he was feeling that day i sometimes was able to use the kitchen sometimes not many times restricted from doing that i had to keep like a strict accounting of everything that i spent and to give it to him basically got to be on a daily basis i think i think there were more but i can't remember right now the rest Larry placed a
3: lock on the refrigerator and told Isabella to enforce his rules even when he wasn't there.
4: Felicia recalled Isabella's role during the trial. She would be the one to, like if I went to the refrigerator when I wasn't supposed to, she would be the one, Larry said you can't go into the refrigerator, you can't go into the kitchen, you can't go into, into your room, you can't get your clothes. She would be the, the one to actually stop me from doing it or prevent me from doing whatever it was he said I couldn't do.
3: In April 2016, Felicia wrote an email to Larry in which she berated herself and listed all of her supposed shortcomings
4: and things she needed to fix to be with Larry. She wrote, I'm tired of being such a disappointment as a human being. I need to help Larry so our lives get better and not worse. I need to survive. I need to help myself. If I am not with Larry, I will die and I don't want to die. I need to help Larry save the house and get his other daughter back from the bad guys. I need to help Larry with everything. I will still be a part of this family because I am a part of this family. I'm the Ray family doctor. I have lost everything. It's time to get it back. It's time to get back on the horse so we can get married and get Ava back. I will not be a victim. I will not be a victim. I will not be a victim. I will not be selfish. I will give Larry all of me." Felicia was still living
3: with Larry and Isabella in Piscataway when the authorities obtained a search warrant roughly 10 months after the damning New York Magazine article was published. On February 11, 2020, this search warrant was executed, along with an arrest warrant for Larry Ray. A team of around 15 to 20 FBI agents embarked on Larry's home in Piscataway at around 6 a.m., just as dawn was beginning to break. They approached the single-family residence and knocked on the front door, announcing their presence. Felicia Rosario, Larry's so-called wife, opened up the front door and the agents all piled in one after the other. They instantly conducted a sweep of the residence, scanning from room to room to identify any individuals in the residence and ensure that no weapons were present. FBI Special Agent Rachel Graves was serving as search team lead, whose role it is to fill out paperwork at the scene and assign designated tasks for other agents. It was a tedious task due to the immense clutter inside the home. FBI's special agent Graves recalled how the rooms were just filled from floor to ceiling with items that was hard to enter and actually search. There were rooms that were just in disarray and clearly not lived in, or maybe even used as a kind of storage area instead of a closet. By the afternoon, FBI agents had removed hundreds of boxes of documents, electronic devices, including cell phones, and other forms of media.
4: Felicia recalled the early morning raid. Oh, my goodness, it was chaos. They were very organized, but it felt like chaos to me. They heard the pounding on the door, and there were agents everywhere surrounding the house. I could see them on all sides through the windows. Then they just, like, filed in. I just didn't know what to do. I was so scared. I mean i was like what is happening
3: seemingly larry always knew this day would come as felicia recollected
4: he mentioned before that it would be like the apocalypse it would be a very terrible thing to happen to him him getting arrested would be bad for the rest of us that's what he would say yes
3: after eight years of felicia living with larry that apocalypse he described so often had finally arrived and it was time for her liberation. Unfortunately for Larry, it was his time for retribution. In the next episode, we dissect the charges against Larry Ray and his co-defendant and interview experts who explain just how Larry managed to control people for almost a decade. Executive produced by Elizabeth Rome, Rachel Stockman, Stephen Tolkien, and Sam Goldberg. Edited by Brad Mabee. Researched and written by Adam Klassfeld, Eileen McFarlane, and Emily G. Thompson. Featuring the voices of Justin Black, Arkansas-based YouTuber and owner of the Disturbing Truth YouTube channel as Santos. Paula Barros, host of Cold Case Files podcast as Claudia. And Jillian Jalali from Court Junkie as Felicia. This is Long Crime's Devil in the Dorm.